Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Good morning, church family. Ten weeks comes and goes pretty quick, doesn't it? We're at the end of our series that we've been calling Belong, Believe, Become through the Gospel of John. Today we're in John chapter 11, if you want to turn there and follow along in your copy of the Bible. Nicodemus thought he could earn his place to belong, John chapter 3. The woman at the well was searching for a place to belong, John chapter 4. The paralytic, John chapter 5, he had given up searching for a place to belong. He felt like an outcast. Until all three of those individuals had an encounter with Jesus that changed everything they ever understood about what it means to belong and have a place to call their own. Then we talked about having a truth to believe. We talked about the blind man in John chapter 6, and we talked about how each of us comes into this world blinded by sin. We can't see the way to go. And just like the blind man, all he had to go on were the words of Jesus. That's really all we have to go on, putting our faith and trust in the truth The words of Jesus, he is the word made flesh. We talked about, sorry, that was John chapter 7, wasn't it? John chapter 6 was feeding the 5,000. We talked about how the world is hungry for truth, starving for a truth to believe. Jesus feeds the multitude and he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And Steve talked about how the term belief, pistos in the Greek, is an active term. Faith, believing, it requires us, it calls us to action, acting out the word of God. And we talked about having the courage to become, the courage to become. That's when we talked about the blind man. All he had to go on were the words of Jesus Christ. And then last week in John chapter 10, we talked about the good shepherd, knowing our shepherd's voice, recognizing his voice, and choosing his voice above all the other noise in this life. Because there are so many voices fighting for our attention these days. So that brings us to John chapter 11. Are you there? Are you there? Are you with me? So you are here? Okay. John 11. In a matter of months in the narrative here, Jesus is going to be crucified after he's arrested and falsely tried. He's going to be buried in a tomb and he's going to rise again on the third day and we're going to celebrate Easter together. I'm looking forward to that. Here in John 11, this is the seventh sign miracle. We've been counting seven sign miracles. We've been counting seven feasts. We've been counting seven I am statements. We're going to have the fifth I am statement here in John chapter 11. But this, this is the culmination of the sign miracles. You could say in many ways, this is Jesus' miracle of miracles in his earthly ministry that points to the fact that he is the Christ in what we're going to read in John chapter 11. In many ways, the gospel of John has been building the narrative to this point. This is when there's a key transition in the storyline. Jesus is about to display his power to the world as he's never done before. Only John records this story in his gospel. So let's get into it. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Not that she's done that yet, but she's about to do it in the next chapter. And John is writing this 50 years later, and he's writing this down in retrospect. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved all three of them. Let's just take a moment and think about the fact that Jesus in his earthly ministry had some close friends. The kind of friends that you go over to their house, you share a meal, not just one meal, but it happens multiple times. The type of friends that you exchange gifts with. The type of friends that are so comfortable around you that they can argue with one another in your presence. They can be the real them. Jesus, tell my sister Mary to help me out here in the kitchen. That type of friends. You got friends like that? Jesus hung out at his friend's house. But at the moment, Jesus isn't with his friends. They're sending a message to Jesus because he's not there with them. Lazarus is very sick, severely sick, even to the point of death. His sisters are so worried about him. But Jesus isn't there. He's not with them. They have to send word to Jesus via messenger. They couldn't send a text. This isn't Facebook messenger. This is a, an actual person carrying a message to Jesus. It probably took them a while to travel all those miles from Bethany, which is near Jerusalem, to the Jordan River, which is where Jesus is at at this moment in the story. Jesus is miles away. Does God ever seem distant in your pain? Does it ever feel like he's not there? God, I could really use your presence here with me right now in the midst of this. God, if you would just show up here in my pain. Like, we know that God is always with us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. Joshua 1.9, Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us. He's always here with us. But it's one thing to know it here, and it's another thing to know it here, isn't it? When you're in the midst of that pain, and you want to ask God, where are you in this? Why this? Does God feel distant? Have you ever received a call like that from friends, from family? I have. I'm sure you've been there. Car accident, a cancer diagnosis, a lost pregnancy. So here's the age-old question of evil. The question of a loving God allowing pain. Let's just get right into it off the bat. Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved Lazarus. He's not just a certain guy. He's Jesus' close friend. So why the illness? Why are they suffering? Surely if you're close to Jesus, there's no struggle, right? If, if you're close enough and intimate enough with Jesus, then there shouldn't be any pain in life. 
right? Jesus gives the same response as when the disciples asked him about the blind man, the very same conversation. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because surely this is somebody's fault, right? He must be way outside God's will in some act of sin to have this calamity come upon him. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God could be displayed in him. You remember that, John chapter 9? Well, here Jesus says, this is for the glory of God. This illness doesn't lead to death. This is for the glory of God. The glory of God. What was the end game of this illness? It wasn't death, it was glory. You see, God works in hard things. Do you know that to be true? Not necessarily in comfort and ease. The Bible says this light and momentary affliction is bringing about an eternal weight of glory. Life is a vapor, but heaven is eternal. Ever thought about the fact that you won't need faith in heaven? I heard somebody say that over the last 10 days. I can't remember where it came from. You won't need faith in heaven. There's nothing to need faith for. In heaven, you're saved, you're sanctified, you're redeemed, you're freed. You are home. You're experiencing the fullness of your redemption. There's no more need to hope. There's no more need to trust. There's no more need to believe. There's no more sin to concern yourself with. Every tear is wiped away. There's no more fear. There's... No more death, there's no more cancer, there's no more pain, there's no more hurt. Sorrow is no more. But right now, right here, in this life, where sin causes pain, sickness and difficulty, this is where we need faith. This is where faith has grounds to grow. This is where faith is tested and developed in your life. Having the courage to become is understanding that God works all of these things together for good. According to his purposes. Because of his love for us and our response of love to him. God is working all these things together for good. Do you trust him when life is hard? When your close friend Lazarus is sick, look at verse 6. So, because of those first five verses, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he hopped on the next flight and he got right there so he could be with his friend in his time of need. He hopped on his camel and he was right there, made a quick stop at Hallmark to pick out the right card with the right saying, picked up some flowers, maybe some chocolates. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, what did he do? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Mm, mm -mm. Nah, that's not going to work for me, Jesus. That's not, that doesn't fit with my timeline. That doesn't fit with my theology of prayer. I sent the message. I prayed the prayer. I know you received it. I need you here now. Not two days from now. I need you here like right now because I'm in the thick of it right now. 
I need you to step in. And if you can't be here, you need to make a doctor's donkey break down outside my house who specializes in this specific illness. And then I'll know that you heard my prayer. Where are you, Jesus? Why aren't you responding to my prayer? Send me some medicated ointment from heaven. Maybe a snake on a stick. I've heard you do that in the Old Testament. Those must have been the longest two days in these sisters' life, don't you think? And it was more than two days because, remember, they had to send the messenger miles to the Jordan River, deliver the message. Jesus stayed for two days, and then he had to travel miles to Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. So this is four to five days that they're waiting for Jesus. Doesn't time just seem to slow down in the waiting? Do you remember when you were a kid waiting for whatever, and it just seemed like time was just irking by. Was Jesus' choice to stay two days longer a way in which to grow and stretch and develop Mary and Martha's faith? And Lazarus? They loved having Jesus over to hang out at their place for a nice meal and some conversation on the couch. But at the end of the day, is he the savior of their soul or is he just a friend with good stories in a comfortable living room setting? We want God to follow our timeline, don't we? And submit his will to our prayer. God, if it be your will, it might be, it might not be, but this is my will. So if you could get on my page and answer according to my timeline... But what if his plans are bigger and broader and more glorious than what we're asking of him? What if God's plan for your life involve allowing some hardships which bring you to your knees in desperate need of him and therefore change the trajectory of your life's mission for the gospel? What if God's not willing to let you glide easily through a pain-free, comfortable life because... He wants to accomplish more through your life. You've seen the characters on TV. Maybe you've even met some in person. The ones who grow up with a golden spoon in their mouth. Never have a need of anything. Always have the parents' money to rely on. Don't have to get a summer job. Don't have to try hard in school because mommy and daddy will talk to the teacher. They're set for life. And they're snobs. What if, what if God were a good enough father to not let you waste your life in an easy chair in front of the TV when you were designed to tell the world about him? What if God were inviting you to the deep end so that you can trust him when he says, I won't let you sink? Look at verse 7. Then after this, staying two days longer, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, teacher, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Go back to chapter 10. The Jews wanted to stone him because he was claiming to be the Messiah. Are you going to go there again? 
Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? I know there's 24 hours in a day, but in Jewish culture, it went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., which is 12 hours, and that's what Jesus is referencing, one of those cultural uh, understandings of Scripture here. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Is Jesus talking about the dark night of the soul, the dark, shadowy areas of life that we walk through, the shadow of death where he promises to be with us? Is Jesus talking about the fact that he's the light of the world and it's about to get really dark because he's going back to his father after he accomplishes what he was sent here to do? He would soon be crucified. His time to leave was approaching. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, he says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Oh, well, that's great. Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Let's just wait until morning and he'll wake up, right? Silly disciples. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Look at what he says next. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. I'm glad I wasn't there that you may believe. Whoa. Wait a second, Jesus. This is your close friend whom you love that you're talking about. How can you be glad that you weren't there to say goodbye as he breathed his last? Because, and it says it in the verse, this will be a faith-building opportunity for the disciples. He's not talking about Lazarus. He's saying for your sake, for the disciples. Did you know that having the courage to pursue God through difficult seasons of life can serve as an incredible testimony to the people around you? It's like Jesus is saying, this pain won't be for naught. This sickness won't be wasted. It will be a display of the glory of God in Lazarus' life. It will be for the building of your faith. You will become more courageous in your faith because of what is about to happen through this illness. James chapter 1 and verse 2, let me read it for you. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In a similar manner, Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings. Rejoice. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. You know how hard things accomplish something in your life? Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, we, send, we tend to see tests and trials and sufferings as loss, don't we? 
The hard things in life, the difficult seasons, they, they take away from us. That's our interpretation. But don't these scriptures promote the flip side of that thought? That there is gain in pain? That suffering can produce something good? That testing your faith produces something steadfast? It's like a refining process. James and Paul call us to rejoice when we run into a problem, not to worry and fret and run and hide, but rejoice. It's really hard to test your faith in the shallow end, isn't it? Uh, This past week was March break. Did anybody go away for March break? Get a little trip in? Yeah, a few. Uh, My family went to Quebec City. We've never done that. We stayed a couple nights, did some exploring. Because gas is cheap, why do you not want to drive nine and a half hours, you know? Um, But we booked a hotel with a pool and a splash pad because we knew the kids would love that. But when we got there, we found out it's one of those pools that doesn't have a shallow end. It's just the same depth right across. And it was almost okay for Reese. He could just kind of tip on his tippy toes with his chin stuck up and he could, you know, catch a breath between choking on water and he did all right. But for Jade, she couldn't touch at all, and she's just kind of learning to swim. So if you've ever had a toddler in a swimming pool who can't touch, you know what that's like. It's like toenails and fingernails all over your body. So that was daddy's job for the two days at the pool at the hotel. But by the end of the week, Jade was swimming 12 feet across that pool, which I don't think ever would have happened if there was a shallow end where she felt comfortable enough to wade around and walk and not be in over her head. If she hadn't been in over her head, she wouldn't have learned to swim 12 feet. And daddy would have a lot less scratches all over his body. Isn't faith like that? Isn't faith like a muscle? In order to build muscle, you need to push the limit of your muscle, right? The 10-pound dumbbell today, in a few weeks' time, it'll be the 12.5. And then by the end of the month, it'll be the 15-pound dumbbell. And this body does the crazy, your body does this crazy thing where it, it adapts. You, you build muscle mass. You lengthen the muscle. If you stretch just slightly beyond your comfort limit, then it'll lengthen the tendon, and then you can stretch further. And athletes know that if you keep doing the same program over and over and over, eventually your body will adapt so much that it no longer grows in that program. So you need to do something new. You need to get out of your comfort zone. You need to confuse the muscles. Isn't faith like that? If we keep doing the same thing over and over and over, our our faith will adapt and grow, yes, but eventually it'll plateau, won't it? If we get so comfortable in that routine and never, never push beyond that limit, our faith doesn't have opportunity to grow until we're pushed out of our comfort zone into the deep end. Jesus says to the disciples, this is going to be a bit of deep end swimming for you guys. This is going to stretch your faith. And that's a good thing. Luke chapter 11, verse 16. Sorry, John chapter 11, verse 16. So Thomas, (laughs) doubting Thomas, here we go. Here's a guy who needs to stretch his faith a little bit. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, get this, he doesn't say it to Jesus. 
He doesn't want Jesus to hear him. Do you ever have thoughts or questions or comments that you don't really want to vocalize to Jesus, but you're going to say to your buddies around you? Huh? Husbands? Maybe about your wife? No, don't go there. Thomas, called the twin, looks over at his fellow disciples and he says, well, we might as well go, boys. Let's go die with him. How's that for like rousing camaraderie? inspiring faith. Motivational, right? Let's go die with them. Doubting Thomas. Look at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, get the language in this verse. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. When Jesus came. When do you expect God to step into your situation? When do you think the answer should arrive? Do you think it should be four days from the moment you prayed the prayer and asked for his help in the moment? Doesn't that seem like four days late? Jesus, shouldn't you have been here four days ago? When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Do you think that was the moment Jesus realized, oh boy, I really got the timing on that wrong. Four days late. I've never been late for anything in my life. And look at that. Four days late. No, I don't, I don't think Jesus was surprised that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. I have a, a pastor in my life that I listened to for years and years and years. And one of the comments that I heard him say repeatedly was, does it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Does it ever occur to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Jesus isn't surprised. Jesus knows there's more to the story. Jesus knows your pain and your hurt and your struggle. He's not surprised by how much it's hurting you. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then God's Spirit dwells within you. You don't think His Spirit knows in your innermost being? what you're going through in your time of hardship, God's not surprised by your pain, your struggle. Jesus knew Lazarus had been in the grave for four days already. And the thing is, Jesus knew there was more to the story. Look at verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This was a thing in uh, bereavement in Jewish culture. The, the whole community would gather around and weep and wail as a sign of respect to the deceased. It, it was part of their funeral service, part of their culture. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, and Mary remained seated in the house. Isn't it interesting how people respond to hardship? It says a lot about their personality, doesn't it? It's like the illustration of the toothpaste tube. When the pressure is on, what gets squeezed out? When someone's going through a hard time, what comes out? Martha has a controlling personality. She's the one who's serving, doing all the busy work, telling Jesus, Jesus, tell Mary, she should help me. 
Martha is not interested in sitting, waiting for Jesus to arrive. Oh, he's on his way? I'll go meet him. and I'll give him a piece of my mind. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's fairly accusative, don't you think? Verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Do you see Martha's wrestle with faith and doubt? Jesus, why weren't you here? I sent word, I sent a message. You could have stopped this. You could have fixed this before it happened. But even now, even in the midst of this hardship, even in the midst of this trial and this suffering, even now, I know that you can change things, that you're still in control. Even in the midst of this hard thing, I know you're in control. I wish you had been here before it happened, but I, I still know that you're in control somehow, some way. I don't understand it, but I believe it. You see, you see the doubt and faith that Martha is wrestling with? Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This was a common Jewish understanding that there would be a bodily resurrection. The Greeks didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. They believed that once the spirit was freed from the body, they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Isn't this where so many Christians are at today? Maybe you're here today. Yeah, I know all the wrongs will be made right someday down the road. Yeah, I know abundant, everlasting life is coming someday down the road. On the last day, a long time from now, at the end of my life, someday I'll experience the abundant life of Christ and his forgiveness and his redemption, his victory. Someday down the road when I get to a place called heaven. And Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection and the life standing here right in front of you right now. You don't need to wait until someday. You know, life isn't just an event. It's not a date and time. True life is found in Jesus Christ. He's the resurrection, the life, the way, the truth, and the life. At its simplest, resurrection is a return to life. That's what it means. You know, the whole narrative of scripture is God's plan to take humanity who stepped away from him, wandered away like sheep gone astray, stepped away in sin, to bring humanity back to the original, intended, perfect Garden of Eden. Resurrection. To bring back life as it was originally intended to be, abundant life, real living. 
That's what Jesus offers. Martha says, yes, I believe. You're the Christ. You're coming into the world. It's like watching Martha rationalize this. Yeah, I know it's coming. I can see it afar off, but I really don't understand it. It still feels like something distant and not very tangible, not very practical. Jesus' hour hasn't come yet. We're on the cusp. Look at verse 28. When Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Why hadn't Jesus come any closer yet? He's over by the Jordan. He waits two days. Then he travels miles, and he stops at the edge of the city. Like, Jesus, when are you going to step into my struggle and my problem? Why does it still feel like you're distant? Does God ever seem distant? Why doesn't he step into the situation? Why doesn't he just take over? Why, why does he seem to be outside the village limits of my hardship? Verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's always at Jesus' feet. Have you noticed that? Martha's busy working, complaining that Mary's not, because where's Mary? Mary's at the feet of Jesus. The next chapter, we just heard, we caught, we caught a, a future glimpse, Mary at another dinner party, at their house, with Jesus, with Lazarus, with Martha, is going to pour the ointment on Jesus' feet and then wipe his feet with her hair at the feet of Jesus. And then here's Mary with the same question Martha had, Lord, if you had been here, this would not have happened, except she's at, at Jesus' feet. I think that changes the tone. You know, I've discovered in preaching, maybe you've realized this listening to these sermons, I've realized that I don't have to give all the answers, which is really freeing and encouraging, takes off a lot of the pressure. But we need to talk about the big questions, don't we? Shouldn't, shouldn't your church family be a place where you can ask the tough questions? even if you can't find all of the answers to those tough questions as to why you went through the hardships that you've gone through? It should certainly be the place where you can ask those questions. Mary's at the feet of Jesus asking the same question Martha did. I just get the picture of the child climbing up into daddy's lap with a hundred questions of why. Isn't Jesus' feet the place to bring Life's biggest questions? Certainly better than Google, I would hope. Struggling to find the answer isn't necessarily the hardest part. It's, it's not knowing where to vocalize the questions and concerns. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping at his feet... And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Well, of course Jesus loved Lazarus. It's his, his close friend. Jesus was in pain in his innermost being because of the suffering that this family was going through and his family was, and, and this man's family was going through. But it's not just sadness. The term deeply moved in his spirit means anger. It means roaring anger. Why is Jesus angry? Look, look at verse 37. We're getting to the end here. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Isn't that the question everyone's asking? In a world where instant gratification and comfort and convenience is king, why doesn't Jesus just step in and solve all of our problems for us? Like seriously, that blind man in Jerusalem just two chapters earlier, just a little while ago, did Jesus even know that guy? That beggar sitting outside of the temple? And he healed him. This is one of Jesus' close friends. Why, why would he not have kept him from dying? Why wouldn't he heal his illness? Look at verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. There it is again. The, the Greek term literally means snorting like a horse. You ever seen an angry horse like stomp its hoof and give that, I, I don't know how to do that. that, that snort, that angry snort. Can you picture Jesus giving an angry snort? <clears throat> then Jesus deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Can I just say as somebody who's not overly emotionally expressive, it's okay to be angry when suffering, pain, loss, tragedy, death are part of your story? It's okay to be angry? There's a, a righteous anger that's directed at the enemy, at sin and its consequences. And this is why Jesus is groaning. This is why he's snorting like a horse. His close friends are experiencing the consequences of sin before his very eyes. You don't need to always be happy-go-lucky, smiley-susie Christian when you come to church. It's okay to have some passionate zeal for the things that matter most. It's okay to be angry about the sin in the world. Do you see what Jesus is seeing in this verse? As he's looking at the tomb where his close friend Lazarus is laying? A cave with a stone covering the entrance. And think about that. Lazarus is on the inside, Jesus is on the outside. But in just a few months' time, Jesus is going to be the one in the tomb with the stone in front. And Lazarus is going to be the man who's freed on the outside. Jesus is looking at the consequences and the payment required for sin right in the face. And he's angry about the sin in the world. 
He's angry about the ramifications of sin on humanity in this world. This isn't how the story ends. We've got to close it off here. Verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, (laughs) Martha's trying to rationalize this faith and doubt. Martha, the sister of the dead man, in case you forgot, said to him, Lord, By this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? Didn't God place promises in his word for us to read when we're in the midst of hardship to remind us that he's there with us, that he feels our pain? That Jesus is given as the answer, the ultimate answer to all of the pain in this world. Jesus says, did I not tell you? If you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Isn't that what Jesus says to each one of us? That You don't have to be trapped, dead in your trespasses and sins, sealed in a tomb. He's calling us out of the grave, and he's saying, sin, you have no more hold on him, unbind him. He's free, he's victorious because of what I accomplished for him. It's a picture of you and me. Jesus did this to send a message. Martha, didn't I tell you, if you would believe. Disciples, this happens so that you may believe. God the Father, thank you that you hear me. I'm saying this so that everyone around me can hear you always hear me. Jesus is communicating a message to the people that this isn't just about Lazarus or his sisters or the disciples or even the people gathered around, but this is about every one of us. We were the ones dead in that tomb. And Jesus called us out because of his power, we can have forgiveness and freedom from sin. Imagine the power of that miracle, how fast that story would spread. Lazarus is just walking around town now. Yeah, you see that guy? He was dead for four days last week. Let me show you the tomb. Then Jesus came along, rolled away the stone, and called him out. Go ask him. He's right over there. Look at verse 45. We'll we'll finish this up. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come. They'll take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, we're going to talk about through the Easter story, who was the high priest that year, he said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. For Jesus to call Lazarus out of the grave meant that Jesus was sealing his own fate and that his hour had now come. Do you get that? In order to free you from your grave of sin, Jesus had to seal himself in that grave for your sin. Jesus had to take your place so that you could have life and forgiveness and freedom. We're going to spend some time reflecting on these verses. I'll invite Andy to come with some background guitar there. Would you stand with me? As I lead in this time of prayer, we're going to have some of these specific verses from John chapter 11 up on the screen. This is just an opportunity to make room for the working of the Holy Spirit that he would guide us with the application from the word today that the Holy Spirit would impress on our hearts what he wants us to do in light of God's truth today. You can feel free to keep your eyes open and see the scripture on screen or you can close your eyes and and pray with me if you wish. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that you love me. Thank you, Jesus, that you are close to me. You know me intimately. Please, God, would you... Help me to understand your timing, especially when it's different from mine. God, would you please help me to submit to your will? Forgive me, Jesus, for my lack of faith. Jesus, forgive me for my unbelieving attitude. Holy Spirit, would you please strengthen my faith even in the midst of doubt? Spirit, give me courage in the face of my fears. Show me that you're with me in the trial. Thank you, Jesus, that you are real life. Jesus, thank you that you bring life back the way it's meant to be. Thank you, Jesus, that you brought me from the tomb, from death to life. Please, God, would you help me with my difficult questions? God, would you give me peace as I lay my doubts at your feet? 
Jesus, would you forgive me for wondering if if you knew my pain? Forgive me, Jesus, for thinking that maybe you didn't care. Forgive me for questioning your heart for me. And Jesus, I want to thank you. You took my place in that dead tomb. God, thank you for being willing to give your son. Holy Spirit, thank you for your resurrection power. In Jesus' name.